In your Bible today, the book of Psalms, number 119. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And I'm reading only one verse with you today. Why don't you stand with me, though, as we read God's Word together. Psalm number 119. The subject today is a clash of worldviews. A clash of worldviews. Psalm 119. This verse is a prayer. Is the psalmist David who wrote this is speaking to the Lord. And in verse 126, here's the prayer. It is time for thee, Lord, to work. For they have made void thy law. It is time for thee, Lord, to work. They have made void thy law. What a profound Scripture today. You may be seated. Not since the Civil War has our nation been so divided. We're divided at the absolute deepest level. We're watching an assault on our religion, on our morals, an assault on our values, our traditions, our history, even our laws. The division is far deeper than what you hear discussed normally. It's deeper than Republican versus Democrat, than red states versus blue states. It's deeper than conservative versus liberal because the division is is even more basic than any of those things that I've just described because the division is spiritual. We are spiritually divided today as a nation. And the reason for it is that there's a battle of two very competing worldviews. The first one is what we emphasize here at our church and our school. We call it the biblical or the Christian worldview. You don't have to go very far in your Bible to find it. You find it on the first page and the first verse. In the beginning, God. And so the Bible starts with the existence of God. The Bible doesn't try to make a case or an argument for God. It assumes anybody who could read would have enough sense to know there's a God. And so it just simply says, in the beginning, the God who we assume to exist because of this so much evidence for him, in the beginning, he created the heaven and the earth. And so it teaches from the very first verse the existence of a supreme being, a transcendent being, transcendent meaning he's over the entire universe. I picture him sitting on his throne in heaven and looking down at the stars and the moon and the planets, transcendent over everything. This God is eternal. There never was a time he did not exist. In fact, he gives us as one of his names the name Jehovah. And if you'll look up the meaning of the word Jehovah, it means the self-existent one. He doesn't need anything to exist. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need drink. 
He doesn't need support. He doesn't need encouragement. He doesn't need our approbation or our approval. He exists as a self-contained, as it were, being. He is self-existent. He is eternal. There never was a time he was not. There never will be a time when he will not be. And he is not only eternal, but he is infinite. By infinite, I mean without limits. He has no limit to his knowledge, for there's nothing that God does not know. He is infinite in his power, for there is nothing, nothing that God cannot do. If he conceives it, he can do it. He is omnipotent and omniscient, without limits in knowledge or in power. And he's not a force like in Star Wars. He's not like gravity or magnetism or electricity. He is a personal being. By personal being, I mean he has personhood. And so he thinks he has a mind. He feels he has emotions. He acts so he has a will, the power to choose. And then the Bible teaches in those following verses that he created us in his image. That's one of the most important concepts that you as a Christian can understand today, the image of God. I am created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God. What does that mean? Does that mean I look like him, that he has a body with arms and legs and a face? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that I'm like him in that as he has the capacity to think, so do I. He has the capacity to feel emotions, so do I. I'm in his image. He has the capacity to make choices and to act consistent with those choices, and so do I, and so do you. And so I could take the biblical or Christian worldview and I could put it into a formula. And here's the formula. I'll put it up here for you. The ultimate reality for a Christian is God plus nothing equals everything. God is God. God plus nothing equals everything. Now, you know that's so important that you grasp that a little bit. I'm not sure I grasp all of that as well, but that's the ultimate reality for us as believers in Almighty God. And, and that narrative, that Genesis account, when I refer to it as a story, I don't mean a story like Hans and Gretel. I don't mean it's a story like, you know, uh, Black Beauty. I don't mean it's a story like a myth I mean, but that account, that narrative, it covers everything. It covers the universe. It covers all of existence. It's the only thing that explains what is, said Francis Schaeffer long ago. The Christian worldview explains what is. Whatever you encounter in life, the Bible, the Christian worldview covers that. Maybe not comprehensively, but it covers it. It touches on it. It, it reveals to you great truth about it. And the conflicting worldviews, the other worldview is the secular worldview or the materialistic worldview would be a good name for it. And it doesn't begin with God. It has no scripture that says, in the beginning, this 
transcendent supreme being. This worldview begins with matter, and it begins with energy, and it has absolutely no explanation for where that matter came from or where that energy came from. Oh, sometimes we hear this term, the Big Bang, but nobody can prove there was a Big Bang. Who was there to hear the Big Bang? It's like the tree falling in the forest. Who was there to hear? Nobody, no, but nobody was there. Well, the same way, there was nobody there. So the Big Bang is an hypothesis. It's, an, it's a theory. And the secular worldview, the materialistic worldview, has no God. There is no supreme being attached to it. There's no supernatural to it. Some of us are old enough to remember back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a famous scientist. His name was Carl Sagan, S-A-G-A-N. And Carl Sagan make, made a 13-part uh, TV uh, series on, that was put on public broadcasting, PBS. And I watched it. It was interesting, and yet it was, it was depressing because in every episode, Carl Sagan came on the camera, and he made this statement. The cosmos, his term for the universe, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, or all there will ever be. I thought those are the most hopeless, despairing words I've ever heard. That's nihilism in one little phrase. The universe is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. In other words, energy and matter and no explanation for where it came from or how it was formed and how it diversified into all the different things that we know that occupy the universe. And so the secularists, the materialistic, their worldview is matter plus energy plus chance plus time. You take energy and matter, and then you give it enough time, billions of years, they tell us, and then they say, random chance. These things came together randomly, and now out pops everything. We have everything as a result of energy, matter, chance, and time. Now, there's a lot of ifs in that. There's a lot of ifs in that theory, isn't there? And so we have a clash between those two worldviews. We have the Christian the biblical worldview, you hear us talk about it all the time with our children in our school. That's the great emphasis of our school, to teach them that model because it explains everything. And then over on the other side of that, you have this secular materialistic worldview. There is no God. Time plus chance plus matter plus energy explains everything that is. And you see why those clash. They're diametrically opposed. And by the way, they cannot be reconciled. They can't be synthesized. They can't be brought together. They cannot be harmonized in any way. There is no common ground for us to agree with them on. And so why is America divided? 
deeper than red states versus blue states, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals. We're divided because we don't see the world the same way. We have a Christian biblical view of time and history and origins and destiny. And the people around us, they don't have that. All there is is the cosmos. It's all there ever was, and it's all there ever will be. You can't reconcile those two views. And I would say to you that your worldview, number two, is the most important thing about you. Your worldview, the way you look at life and interpret life is no doubt, if not the most important, one of the most important things about you because it tends to define everything else. You see, our worldview determines our view of man, of each other. When I say man, I don't mean males. I mean humanity. But I just refuse to go back to this political correct type stuff. So I'm just going to call it man. You understand what I mean. Our worldview is the most important thing about us because it determines the way we look at each other at mankind, with humankind. And to us, all human life is sacred life. Every human being is significant, even though there have been billions of us. And even though we're in a fallen state, we're far down from where the glory that God created Adam and Eve in, because of sin, we're in this fallen state. But even though we're in this fallen state, we're significant, and we're significant because we bear the image of God. We're like the Creator. We think as He thinks. We can feel. We can act out our feelings and our thoughts. And so to us, our view of man, the people around us, no matter who they are, red or yellow, black or white, rich or poor, good or bad, free or imprisoned, we look at them all the same because they all bear the image of God. We have respect for one another because of that. The materialistic worldview group, they simply have reduced man to a complex arrangement of molecules. He doesn't have any significance after all, he got here by pure, blind, random chance. What, wh why would he be significant? He has no mark of God upon him. There's nothing significant about him. He's no different than a piece of protoplasm or meat or animal in the final result of things. He's just molecules, atoms. He'll come and he will go. So there's a reduction in the view of humankind. And secondly, your worldview determines your view of truth. And so for us, the Christian, we say God has spoken. God has spoken in the past. And he appointed holy men who wrote down the words that he said, and they collected them and put them in this book called the Bible, the Scripture, the Holy Scripture. And we believe that this is God's Word that 
recorded by these holy men of old through the miracle of inspiration. We have the very words of God himself. In fact, the Bible itself claims to be the word of God over and over. If it is not the word of God, it is just one big book full of lies. It should just be thrown away. But it's the truth. And it's the law word of God. It's God's law. It's not his suggestion for you. It's his law word. And we have this in a book. Praise his name for that. And from this book, we have moral absolutes. We have moral values. We say things are right or whether they're wrong according to what this, how this describes those things as either right or wrong. And, and so we have a basis a, a foundation for morality and for right and wrong and for truth and for falsehood. And all of it comes from one source, the Word of God. And the Bible says that God values His Word above His very name. Now, the name of God is so significant through the Bible. There are hundreds of names of God in Christ given in the Bible, but even above God's name, which gives, which defines his character, above his name is his word. And so today we have his word. God has spoken. Holy men of God have written it down. It's been preserved for us, and it's the basis of our morality for our view of right and wrong. And those over on the other side in this energy matter chance worldview group, they have no basis for truth. And so today they have no truth. And as Isaiah the prophet said long ago, truth has fallen in the streets. Boy, if that doesn't describe America, because we, don't, we can't define truth anymore. We don't know what truth is because, you see, we've, we've decided that God's Word is not true. And if God's Word is not true, who defines what truth is? You know, in the materialistic worldview, here's how truth is defined. It's defined by the person who has the most power. And so today, up in Washington, the people with the power are telling us what's right and wrong. And they're upsetting our whole worldview and all this... All this um, conflict we have in the country, this division, is because we've got a group of people who are redefining what is true, what we've always understood to be true from God's Word. And that's why I say that the division is so deep. To them, all moral standards are relative today, all of them. I'll give you an illustration because it is such an important illustration. I don't want you to ever get very far away from understanding how important this issue of abortion is. In 1973, the people in power, nine black-robed judges sitting on the so-called Supreme Court. It's not the Supreme Court, I tell you, my friend. The Supreme Court's up here. They, they are the underling court to that one. And, but these nine black-robed, arrogant individuals, you listen to them talk, you'd think they think they're the fountain of all truth. And so these birds, 
that day, sitting there on their bench, decided that a human life is not viable, it's not a true human until it's at a certain stage of development. And they declared that little unborn baby to not be a person. They robbed it of its personhood. So a babe in the womb, ready to be born in just a few hours or days, is no longer a person, according to them. And what they decided was that power, listen to me carefully, power is more important than justice. That, and the mom and the doctor have the power. And the governor of Virginia about three years ago said that even after that baby is born, that physician and that mother could consult together and determine that that child's life was not viable and that child could be laid aside and allowed to die. Who gave him the right to determine that? Who gave those nine black-robed judges the right to determine that? You see, they decided that power overrides justice. What about justice for the baby? Has anybody remembered that recently? In your Bible, the book of Romans tells us why we're here, why we're where we are in this culture today. Chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and I think one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, you surely should, living in our times, you surely should be very familiar, maybe even memorize this passage. Romans chapter 1, and I begin reading God's Word from verse 21. Because when they knew God back in ancient times, they failed to glorify Him as God, and neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations. Sometimes we render the word imaginations reasoning. They became vain in their reasoning. Their reasoning was distorted because they did not have God in their reasoning. Their foolish heart was darkened, and professing themselves to be wise, this is the assessment of God, not Bill Monroe. They became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. They replaced God with idols. And they made idols in the form of men, birds, beasts, and creeping things. And God gave them up. God just set them aside. God just said, okay, if you're going to do that, I'm not going to work with you anymore. And he abandoned them, if you would to uncleanness through the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And here's where we are today. Underscore this in your Bible. They changed the truth of God to a lie. They changed the truth of God into a lie. I know of more, no more adequate description of the thinking processes of those who have this secular worldview than that. They changed the truth of God to a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature. That's the environment. That's the universe, the cosmos that Sagan talked about. They serve the cosmos more than the Creator 
who created it, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, you see, if you've eliminated God and you change His truth to a lie, where do you go from here? There was a great Russian writer. He wrote during the early days of the communist revolution. His name was Dostoyevsky. And Dostoyevsky concluded from those dark days in the Soviet revolution, if there is no God, then anything is permissible. If there is no God, anything is permissible. Everything's possible. If you get rid of God and you have only a materialistic universe, anything's permissible because there's no longer any basis for morals, for right or for wrong. And you say, so how does all this relate to us, preacher? You just, are you just preaching a bunch of theory? No, I'm going to make it very practical right now. Our country has traditionally been a nation, um, a nation of laws, we always said. A nation of laws that above everything was the law, the Constitution. In fact, we, call, we refer to it, the Constitution is our king. America doesn't have a king. We have a Constitution. He's above the president. The Constitution is above the legislative bodies, the Senate and the Congress. It's above the courts. The Constitution is our king. This wonderful thing we call the law in America. And we go back, and to really get a grasp of it, we go back to the year 1215, a long time ago, over 800 years ago now. We go to a little meadow in England. It's called Runnymede. And one day in Runnymede, there was a group of nobles, British farmer, landowners, powerful men, members of the royalty, and together they had as much power as the king had. And so they called for the king, and he met them at Runnymede, and they had prepared a document that we know today as the Magna Carta. It's the beginning of freedom, really, as we understand it in a modern context. Your freedom can be traced all the way back to that meadow in 1215. Our Constitution has its roots in the Magna Carta. And they said to the king, look, king, you've been operating under this divine right of kings concept, which means you're not accountable to anybody. God has given you the right to do anything you want to do, and whatever you do is right. But we've had it with that, and our power is equally yours, and we want you to sign this document, or we're going we're go to we're react against you. You signed this document today, which means that from now on, King, you are under the law just like we're under the law. Everybody will be under the law now, including you. You will be held accountable. And they had enough power between them that the king signed that. And what a difference that has made in human history. You can see a real turn in history from that point. About that time, there was living in England a man named Henry de Brockton, and he was a judge, and he was a devout Christian. And Henry de Brockton wrote these words, and listen to them, quote, and he, the king, he's referring to the king here, he, 
he ought to be under the law appears clearly in the ministry of Christ. Now, look, listen to me carefully. You need to understand this in our times, that Henry de Brockton, this English judge, is saying that we can see the reason men ought to be under the law first. We can see it in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Christ. He said, there were many ways open for Christ to redeem the human race, but God chose the most powerful method to destroy the devil's work by not using, <clears throat> by not using the power of force, but the power of justice. And what did he mean by that? He meant that God had the power to destroy the devil. He could have destroyed the devil the day the devil sinned. He could have destroyed the devil the day that he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. But he didn't. He could have crushed Satan. But he chose not to. And why did he? Because he chose to use the power to elevate justice to a higher level, a higher order than than power. God had the power to crush Satan, but he didn't. In fact, he put justice above power. And so today, boy, the implications that when I read this a few weeks ago, it, it just overwhelmed me. I mean, I came to the point of tears. I sat, I sat in my chair at home, and, and, and I became emotional what the most profound thought I think I've read or heard in, in a long, long time. At the cross, God sent his son, as, as, as Chris so beautifully sung about a few moments ago. And the reason we elevate the cross, it's everything. It's, it's the most prominent feature in this room. Why? Because Instead of God crushing Satan earlier on with his power, he sent his son to the cross so that justice would be served. And I mean by that, that man had broken the law of God billions of times in history. But that Jesus Christ stepped up one day in heaven and he said, Father, I'm going to go and instead of you punishing them, instead of your justice raining down upon them, I'm going to go and we're going to place all the sins, the debt of sin for all of humanity upon my shoulders, and I'm going to go to the cross. And instead of crushing Satan, we will defeat him with justice. And at the cross that day, the Lord Jesus hung there and justice rained down on him. When you look at the cross... Every song and every message and everything we hear about in contemporary life today seems to be about God's love and about God's grace. Will you listen to me and reason with me from the Scripture for a moment? I'm going to tell you the most important thing that happened at the cross first was not love and it was not grace. It was justice. And God had to punish our sins. He had to satisfy justice before he could extend grace and love and mercy. Forgiveness didn't come from the cross until justice was satisfied. 
Isaiah chapter 53, it has pleased the Lord to, to, to bruise him. Justice. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because justice was being poured out. And once justice was poured out upon our lovely Lord, then God was free to deal with us in love and mercy and kindness and grace and all those wonderful attributes that we sing about and praise his name for. So here's the Christian worldview. Power is not first. Justice, the satisfaction of God's law is first. Then grace, mercy, forgiveness, love all follow. Samuel Rutherford was a Presbyterian preacher in Scotland. The year was 1644. He wrote a book, it's called Lex Rex. And the Lex, the law, and Rex, the king. The law is king. This is a Presbyterian writing here, godly man. And he says that the basis of all of our civil law must be based upon the law of God. That if we pass civil laws that are incompatible with the Word of God, then that they really have no basis to stand other than popular approval, but that ultimately the law is the king. Francis Schaeffer interpreted that in this way. He said, the prince may have the power to control and rule you, but he does not have the power to do so without justice. The prince, the government, the president has the power to rule, but he does not have that power to do so without justice. The model of the Lord Jesus Christ and God. Justice must be satisfied first. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed in God. He had some strange views about the Bible. But he was familiar with Samuel Rutherford and Lex Rex, and he was familiar with Henry de Brockton, the Magna Carta. And so he sets down to begin to write our Declaration of Independence and the primary right of our Constitution. One of the most brilliant men ever uh, to step on American soil. And Jefferson wrote this phrase, certain and unalienable, inalienable rights. And he says those rights come from God. Those rights don't come from the state because the state could withhold them. Those rights, rights don't come from the king or the president or whoever the leaders are. They, are. they transcend all human institutions. Those rights come directly from God. And then we write our constitution and our laws and then there's something even above our law, though, and it is God who gives us these inalienable rights. He says the purpose of the Constitution really is to protect our rights. Now, I said a moment ago the Christian worldview is this, that power 
is not first, but justice is first. For those with a materialistic and secular worldview, they turn that upside down. That's why we're divided today. Power comes before law and justice. And so today we have a man in the White House. That man is flaunting both the law of God and the law of man. And the result is chaos. It's lawlessness in our society. And it has nothing to do with liberal and conservative and red and blue and all that stuff. It has to do with, is there a God who is supreme who has given us his law word and we are under it and are to dispense justice? That's the role of the government in our life. And we got chaos at the border. Lawlessness. We got chaos in the military. We've got chaos in the economy. I filled up my car last year. It was a dollar and eighty-seven cents. This year, it's three dollars. We've got chaos in our morals. God didn't make them male and female. God made them in more varieties than hands. And we've got chaos in even public health. The NIH and the CDC and the DHEC, whatever it is. We've been trying to manage a school through all this. We look at the NIH website. We look at the CDC website. We look at the DHEC website. Mr. Beer and I get together several times a week. What are we going to do? You know what I've concluded? They don't know what they're doing at any of these agencies. I mean, we'll look at, the, we'll look at one of their websites, talk with one of their people on the phone. They'll tell us two different things. How do you have so much chaos? Well, you have no basis for truth because you have no God who is the supreme lawgiver. Now, the man in the White House says that if we don't behave ourselves down south and take our shot, he's going to withhold the antibodies from us. Can you imagine a leader who wants to punish the people in a region of his country because they won't do what he wants them to do? Power before justice. And now he wags his finger and says, his patience is wearing thin. Mm, 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 mm. Here's the problem. People can't live with chaos. And the record of history is that when the chaos gets to a certain extent, the people turn and they appoint an authoritarian. And tyranny takes over. And we lose our freedom. And so today, I specifically very... To the best of my ability, thank God for our freedom to worship. Don't take that for granted anymore. Proverbs 29 and 2, when the righteous are in authority, people rejoice. And when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. 
America is not a very happy place today because we've forgotten God. So these are dangerous times, but let me give you a note of real hope. Let me tell you, God is working. Will you go back to your verse with me now that we read and where we started? We will end. Psalm 119, 126. David's prayer should be our prayer. It's time, Lord, for you to work. Lord, it's time for you to work in our country. We have got to hear from you, Lord, in this chaos. For they have made void thy law. There's the root problem in America and in Western, the Western world today. And we're the people of God. We haven't given up hope. You know what? In all of this, I, I, I really haven't. I thought I would struggle with just being depressed at times. I haven't been because I know the one who's in charge. And we may live in a world that has a lot of chaos, but it's not out of control with him, is it? And so I, want, I wanted to preach this to you because I want you to have a biblical understanding of what's happening in our world, what the philosophers call a meta-narrative, a story that explains it all. I think it's all explained right there. Either we have a worldview that's based upon the existence of God and His holy law, or we have a worldview it's materialistic as time plus chance plus energy plus matter equals everything. I choose to believe God plus nothing else required is everything. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.